0: And welcome to In the Oil
1: Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Pilato. We have a great show lined up for you. Of course, we will be joined by the editor of Shell Magazine, David Blackman. We'll also be heading to the Women's Energy Network Conference in Denver, Colorado, and catching up with Dr. Darden, retired from NASA, and the president of Wynn, Aaron McGee. But first I'd like to tell you about the latest issue of Shell Magazine. It's a wonderful issue. It breaks down the topic of natural gas, talks about importing, exporting. So if you have questions on what's happening, there's a lot of media attention around um, this clean burning fuel. So you definitely want to go to shalemag.com. That's spelled S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com. Again, that's S-H a-l-e-m-a-g.com and remember it's free and did i mention for less than eighty dollars a year you can get a full year subscription to shell magazine and again all you have to do is visit shale s-h-a-l-e-m-a-g.com and get your subscription mailed directly to your office or home and now it's time to bring on our editor of shell magazine david blackman david welcome to the show
2: hey, it's another beautiful day in Texas.
1: I couldn't agree with you more. I know you and I were um, at the conference uh, in uh, Irving, Texas. Uh, the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers held a, a, their annual expo. Um, and you were there covering uh, all of the speakers in the lineup on the first day, and I covered the back end uh, the last day. Um and it was a really great conference. I'm looking forward. Oh,
2: it was really strong program.
1: Some really big names and some very important information. And I'm really looking forward to um, us covering some some of those attendees and, of course, the uh, the speakers on some of the topics they were covering. I think we need to bring to the show. Um, and so absolutely. I'm, yeah. Yeah. You know, there was a. a, a a gentleman there, um, he's a PhD from um, UT in Arlington, and he was discussing um, the water, uh, produced water treatment. And I thought that was really interesting because I don't think a lot of people really understand how the industry is changing um, and making water uh, way more recyclable, if you will, and even oh, yeah. possibly being able to re-drink it. So um, I'm looking forward to getting him on the show. A couple of other guests we have lined up coming out of that conference. Um, anything exciting you heard on your day? Um, and who were the great speakers um, that really stood out to you?
2: Well, I, you know, the first day they focused a lot on uh, economics uh, and and the overall Condition of the industry, um, you know, things going on with the overall global economy as well, and uh, had had two terrific uh, Ph.D. economists from the Dallas Fed and from API. Uh, Carr Ingham, uh, the, the economist who who consults with the alliance, led a led a panel discussion with those two. And it was really, really informative. You know, and they've talked a lot about uh, the difficulties the, the industry is, is currently having with capital formation. Uh, the money has gotten tighter in the industry this year than it has been the last few years. Um, and so it's become more difficult, you know, getting financing for oil and gas projects uh, from the banks and, and from private equity firms. And so the industry is having to get mainly independent producers are having to get more more creative in how they finance their operations. Um but but you know the other side of that uh, was both economists, which I was very gratified to hear, and Carr as well, had uh, pretty optimistic outlooks for the condition of the overall economy. Uh, both both were predicting between two and three percent global economic growth over the next two years, um, and both gave pretty low percentage chance for for a recession prior to 2021 which is really good and and a big difference from a year ago when, if you remember a year ago, most economists were were talking about uh, the global economy going into recession this year.
1: Right. My, 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 uh, how so quickly things change. <laughs> yeah. Right.
2: Exactly. And, exactly. So that was really good.
1: And everything, everything, it's such a global commodity. Everything goes off of oil and gas, right? Um, right. There was a report that came out in uh, CNBC. It was discussing oil and gas prices, why they're rising even faster than expected this year. What's your thoughts on yeah. that?
2: <laughs> well, and of course, that that's all very predictable. If you just pay attention, I mean, the first of the year, uh, if you remember, we... We talked about that in January, and we talked about the fact that, uh, yeah, right now the, the UN's, the, the International Energy Agency, always comes out with a first of the year projection for crude oil demand, and they had it very low at 1, 1.2 million barrels a day of, of growth during 2019. And, and, and we talked about the fact that they have had to revise those projections upwards in six of the last seven years. Well, guess what? Uh, Two weeks ago, they revised that projection upward from 1.2 million barrels a day to 1.4 to 1.5 million barrels a day of of growing demand for crude oil. Well, at the same time, uh, the other thing that's happened since January is overall shale production in the United States has begun to slow down. Uh, I mean, it's still rising, but it's rising, rising at a slower pace. So you have less crude than was expected coming onto the market from the US. You have the OPEC countries in Russia disciplining themselves and, and restricting their own exports. And demand for crude oil, because the economy is continuing to grow, is continuing to rise at a faster pace than all the quote, experts, unquote, expected. So so what, what's the cause of that? Well, the market's gotten tighter and, and crude that puts pressure for crude oil prices to go up and that's exactly what's happened.
1: Right, you know, it makes me wonder if truly where you really wanna get the best and the real information is right here on this show <laughs> because go, we exactly. don't have any incentives <laughs> to say something to cause something, you know, squeeze on this side of the balloon and it'll blow up on the other side or it'll increase on the other side. It's just genuine good information that you can use changing gears a little bit um there was a lot of reports recently claiming big oil is having more success in permian basin than in other areas than the, like the small companies and my question is is this really truthful information are they having more success
2: yeah they really are uh, particularly in the permian basin and and I think the reasons for that are, are kind of, you know, obvious and, and what we should have expected to happen once these major companies decided to get into the basin in a big way. You know, we had we had uh, ExxonMobil on our cover and Sarah Artwine, the, the CEO of, of XTO, their subsidiary, talked about the fact that they were going into a big program where they were going to leverage their position as an integrated oil company. And and they're not an independent producer. They're an integrated oil company. It means they, they own their production, they own pipelines, they own refineries and they're able to leverage all of that ownership of all those assets into producing their own crude oil and getting it to market. Right. Whereas independent producers can't really do that. They don't own pipelines. These are upstream companies. They, They produce oil and gas and then they sell it. Well, you have to get it to market to sell it, and that means you have to enter into contracts with midstream companies, pipeline companies, to move it to the refineries, and then you have to contract with these same refineries that are owned by the majors in many instances to refine your oil before you can you know, finally get it to market. So it's, it's the ability of these majors to leverage their position as fully integrated oil companies just as it was 130 years ago with Standard Oil They're able to to exert that, you know, leverage the ownership of those assets all through the value chain. And it just makes them better able to get the product ultimately to market.
1: Interesting. Well, David, we're gonna take a quick break. When we return, I wanna get, and switch gears just a little bit, I wanna get on the topic of what's going on with climate change. So uh, don't go away. We're gonna talk about climate change. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back.
0: In the Oil Patch Radio Show is proud to bring you this week's Energy Minute, produced by shalemag.com. Here's Texas Railroad Commissioner Ryan Sitton with your current industry update.
2: This is Texas Railroad Commissioner Ryan Sitton with your Energy Minute. The Colorado State Senate passed Senate Bill 19-181 yesterday, sending the bill to Colorado Governor Polis' desk, who is expected to sign it into law. The bill would make public safety the top priority of state regulators and give local governments authority over the location of new oil and gas wells. With the passage of the bill, industry activity is expected to decline over the upcoming months. WTI closed the day at $62.36 a barrel, down 12 cents, while natural gas closed down one cent at $2.67 per mm MMBTU. This
0: is Ryan Sitton, and that's your Energy Minute. Listen to In the Oil Patch Radio and keep up with the oil and gas industry online at shalemag.com.
1: Hi, this is Kim Bilotto, host of In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Do you have questions on global warming? How about seismicity, air quality, water issues? What's OPEC? What's OPEC Plus? Oil prices and gas prices? You probably have a bunch of questions. And now there is a place for you to go and ask your questions and get answers. Starting every second Saturday, of the month at 2 p.m., we will have a live call in show in which John Tatera, the president of Texas Alliance of Energy Producers, will be joining me in studio to answer all your questions. So be sure to take advantage of getting your most important oil and gas questions answered live and join us on the show. The call in live line is 210. 210- 526-3656. Again, the call in live number is 210-526-3656. Be sure to call in at 2pm. If you want more information on how to call in live or the phone number again, be sure to email us at radio at shalemag.com. That's radio at mag.com. Or just go to our Facebook page in the Oil Patch Radio Show you'll find the information there as well. Would love to talk to you every second Saturday at 2 p.m., so be sure to call in. I'd love to get your questions answered, so be sure to call in at area code 210-526-3656.
0: Agreco has been powering the Permian Basin for over 10 years, supporting Permian producers with temporary power to get their product to market. When utility power is not available, Agreco is your reliable alternative. Agreco supports power systems as small as a single 200 kilowatt to as large as a 50 megawatt power plant. So when your utility power is delayed, call on Agreco to engineer a diesel, natural gas, or battery solution to fit your needs. We have immediate availability right here in the Permian Basin. Call 1-800-AGRECO or online agreco.com.
3: The vision of the Women's Energy Network is to be the premier organization that educates, attracts, retains, and develops professional women working across the value chain. Join today by visiting
1: womensenergynetwork.org
3: Houston or call 1-855-390-0650. The Women's Energy Network, empowering women in energy.
1: And we're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. We're being joined by the editor of Shell Magazine, David Blackman. David, before the break, we were talking about oil prices, a little bit on Permian Basin we touched on, on the major operators versus the smaller independents. I want to switch gears again a little bit and talk about Goldman Sachs said this week that the increased focus on climate change policy and conversations to renewable energy sources are also helping the majors become more dominant again. Do you agree with this? I mean, we certainly are hearing nothing but climate change, uh, (laughs) but uh, tell me what your thoughts are. Do you agree with this?
2: Yeah, you know, I I do think that that is having an impact, you know, um, particularly all the shareholder uh, initiatives that are being brought on these corporate entities uh, to focus internally on reducing emissions and and do a lot of work around uh, trying to engage in, in, in conforming to uh, climate change policies. I think that's having a bigger impact on independent producers than it is on the majors. The majors are better equipped to deal with those kinds of shareholder initiatives and pressure from investors. And And when independents are are less able to deal with that, it it means that some of their investors are no longer willing to invest. And so you're seeing that have an impact on the share prices of these companies. And lower share price makes them less able to go into the financial markets to fund their operations. And so it's just kind of a chain reaction kind of impact that is putting more pressure on independence than it is on the majors. Um, so I do think that's right. And and I think that it's one of the reasons why we see uh, these big oil companies, the major integrated companies like Exxon and BP and Shell, Chevron, coming into these Shell plays in a very big way, whereas five years ago, they were kind of staying out of them. Now they see a real opportunity to have a dominant position in these major asset areas of the country And so they're coming in 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 a big way and exerting their influence. And that's just you know kind of how the oil markets have always worked.
1: Yep, I I couldn't agree with you more. uh, On the other side of this is the green energy debate. The New York Times had a big article this week describing the failure of carbon tax and the cap and trade programs by other countries around the world. Do those programs really work or do they not work?
2: No, they don't work. They don't work. It's all – look, and this is going to make some people angry, and I don't really care. I'm too old to worry about it now. But <laughs> Those things – those programs are just a big scam. They're, they're just the next effort by socialist politicians to grab a lot more money for the government to fund a lot of other stuff, all the other stuff they worry about. And the, 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 these programs, the carbon tax programs, for example, in Australia – they implemented a carbon tax several years ago, at a very low rate, but the rate rose every year. And just last year, they actually rescinded the carbon tax because it had been such a disastrous policy. All it was was a big money grab. That's all the cap and trade programs are in Europe, is a big money grab to get more money into the government, to fund all sorts of social programs and other stuff that these left-wing politicians care about. And they don't use any of it to fund any efforts to reduce climate change. And so it's just, I mean, that's all they are. They're big money grant, and that's why they don't work. It's why you, uh, and I'll close, but I want to stop this after I say this about France, the Yellow Vest movement in France, all the street riots that are going on. What are they protesting? They're protesting climate change taxes, right? That's what those are about, and that's why France is falling apart. It's why England's economy is falling apart. So, no, they don't work. They're not going to work in the United States, although I guess uh, some of the politicians here are going to continue to pursue them. And they don't work because they're not really what the politicians say they are.
1: Right. And then, but, you know, there are people who are still listening. So we um, stop listening um, and get informed. Sorry,
2: I got worked up about that. That's
1: okay. That's okay. (laughs) Um, President Trump keeps sending tweets to OPEC asking them to lower oil prices. And he's done this several (laughs) times this week. So what is his concern about oil prices?
2: Yeah. You know, and Trump, if you've read his books, you know, and I read both of his books uh, in in 2015 when I realized he was probably going to get elected. Um, You know, he's always had the philosophy that high oil prices are bad for the economy and overly high oil prices are undeniably bad for the economy. The question is, what's too high, right? Uh, And so he's becoming concerned here in the last few weeks that uh, you know, as all prices, the WTI price gets to 60 and above, he thinks that's too high and it begins to have a, a detrimental impact on the overall U.S. economy. And so he has reached out to OPEC through his Twitter account and probably behind the scenes to, uh, particularly to the Saudis, to try to get them to put more oil on the market to, to kind of stop this rise in oil prices, because that's his belief. My belief is we're, we're at a pretty healthy situation right now with oil prices. Uh, we're at a level where it's good for the industry. It's probably good. You know, it's good for consumers. Gasoline prices have risen, but they're still low compared to history. Uh, and, and they're not having a major detrimental effect on the overall economy. Now, if you get up above 70, however, I think probably that's the point where he should be really concerned about them because that's probably the point where high gasoline prices uh, kind of start to have a, a negative impact to the economy.
1: Interesting. Energy Secretary Rick Perry told Congress this week that the country should consider shrinking the size of the Strategic Petroleum Reserves, better known as SPR, as the country becomes less reliant on imported oil. Talk about why the SPR exists and whether you think Perry's idea is right on point or not.
2: Yeah, I think he's right. You know, it exists because uh, uh, it it was created in 19, well, actually it was created in the 30s, but it was expanded in the 1970s when we were having the Arab oil embargoes so that we could put into storage 30-day supply of crude oil here in the United States, you know, in case there was another embargo, we'd have at least a month's worth of oil to supply the market with. Well, today, when you know we're no longer importing a whole lot of crude oil. I mean we're only net importing about a million barrels a day now. Do you really need 649 million barrels of crude oil in storage? And I think that's the point Energy Secretary Perry is making. And uh, I think it's actually a pretty strong point because uh, U.S. production is only going to increase over the next five years. And I just I just think it is time probably to think about really restricting the size of, of the oil reserve.
1: Well, you know, the export ban that had been in place for over 40 years, same thing. So when you make changes, you have to look at other things that might also be problematic as well or potentially you could correct. So I, I agree with you on possibly looking at that. And with that, David, we do have to take a quick break. But when we return, I will be jumping into the Women's Energy Network Conference in Colorado, in which I was able to catch up with Dr. Darden, who is a retired NASA scientist. And we'll be right back with more of In the Oil Patch Radio Show.
0: Remember this name, Oilfield Experts, to locate any part, any time for your automotive or oilfield equipment needs. Write down this number, Oilfield Experts, 210-471-1923, and visit us on the web at theoilfieldexperts.com.
1: And welcome back to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Bellato, and today we're at the Women's Energy Network Conference in Colorado. It is their once-a-year annual conference. Lots of women and men attending this annual conference. I encourage you to go to womensenergynetwork.org and learn more. While attending the Women's Energy Network in Colorado, I was able to catch up with Dr. Darden, who is retired from NASA. And here's a little bit of the interview. Uh, You were a great presenter. Um, You gave us a lot of insight uh, pertaining to what it was like um, getting, of course, your degree, What you went into in mathematics. So let me begin with, tell me a little bit about
4: what, you were obviously very involved in mathematics. Is this a calling? As I said, I think it really dawned on me that how much I loved it when I was taking the geometry class, playing geometry in high school. And I believe, as as I recall, I think it was some of the exercises that showed me how I could tell how tall that telephone pole was out there if I knew the distance to the base of that pole. Uh, My mom and dad always stressed education a lot when I was growing up also, and uh, I'm certain that didn't hurt, you know, for their encouragement in that area.
1: Well, education definitely is the key, Um, and I could see how one might see there really is a lot of... uh, Power in understanding how things work. Let's back up a little bit. In your keynote, you discussed uh, going to school, well, frankly, at a time when most women are not looking at those kind of degrees, mathematical degrees and things.
4: Was it hard getting through your education being a woman? My education was almost all segregated. Uh, I, I, while I had white teachers in, uh, when I was getting my bachelor's, I had white teachers, well, I had white teachers in high school uh, because it was a boarding school, and then I had white teachers getting my masters, Uh, but other than that, you you know, I was in a segregated environment, and um, so in that respect, I I got, um, I I, I just, I loved to learn, I still love to learn, and I think that was part of it, and uh, I think I, by that time, I had Kind of said, I'm not going to let what somebody else wants to do drive what I want to do. Very and good. I had, I had decided, you know, that this is really something that I want to do, and I don't want you to tell me I can't do it. And uh, I That's believe probably the driver. worst thing you can tell a woman:
1: is tell us we can't do it, and we're going to go do it. Yeah, so yeah. Let's switch gears a little bit and tell me a little bit about. So how did you begin with NASA, how did, how did you fall into that?
4: Uh, it, it actually just fell into place, I, I, I started taking these classes, I knew I, I needed to take the math because that's what I love. Uh, all of a sudden, um, so I strike out taking math classes like I had kind of thought I needed to do. I get, in, I get this fellowship at Virginia State College which puts me working on light scattering, you know, and working with ma- mathematical equations and everything there. So it, it was just there at a very opportune time. But I had taken the classes, and I all of a sudden had the background for it. And then uh, when, I fin- when I finished my master's, NASA had been recruiting there yesterday. And they, the uh, placement office said, we're going to send your application to NASA, and she did. And I was hired from that. And, um, and how
1: many minority women at that time were
4: really employed at NASA? And
1: what year was this?
4: Okay, the year I went there was 1967.
1: Well, were you the first woman to actually be accepted as the first engineer
4: at w- NASA? Well, or one of the, first? the movie, the movie Hidden Figures had Mary Jackson in there, who also was sponsored by one of the white engineers there, and he helped sponsor her to go take the courses she needed to be able to work in the wind tunnel, and so she was, she's classified as a first uh, african-american uh, engineer there um but i and, and i uh, i got transferred to engineering from the computer office and then i went on to get a doctorate in engineering and you know worked my full career with uh, at that while mary kind of backed out of that and went into the federal women's program to help females with their careers but uh, yes
1: well understanding how important um stem is to of course oil and gas mm-hmm. uh, in that segment Is there anything that you can leave a young woman, uh, you know, who wants to get into uh, the degree? Uh,
4: Yeah, my first slide, and I don't know if you saw that or not, was I had my P4 system, yeah, which, I think people—it's easy for people to remember it because a lot of people mention it to me. But I think the fact that I had thought that this is—I want to get to this career over here—and just thinking about it, this—I need this background and these experiences to get there. So how do I do that? So it takes
1: a little bit thor- of, of yeah. A, a thought.
4: Yeah. Of I, where I had, are you going? That's right. Where I'm going, what I need, what I need by the time I get there. So I was—I had kind of had that in my mind, and that helped me make decisions. That helped me say, I can't quit and not do these classes because this is what I'm trying to do.
1: Thank you, Dr. Darden, for joining us here in the Oil Patch Radio Show. We do have to take a quick break, but when we return, we'll be joined by Aaron McGee, who is the president of Win National and also a partner at Jackson Kelly PLLC. You're listening to in the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. Plan your next meeting or event at Victoria College's Emerging Technology Complex, home to the -the state-of-the-art Conference and Education Center, conveniently located between Houston and Corpus Christi. The center hosts meetings, educational workshops, and banquets for up to 300 people, with the latest in technology amenities and ample parking. Let their professional meeting planners make your next event a success. For more information, go to conferenceinvictoria.com. Once again, that's conferenceinvictoria.com. And welcome back to End All Patch Radio Show. We are attending the Win National Conference here in beautiful Denver, Colorado. And now, let me bring you the interview that we had with Aaron McGee, the president of Win National. I know this is a little uh, unusual for us to be out of studio, so there might be a little bit of some uh, background noise. So I just wanted to kind of get us prepared for that. Um, let's talk about um, your title. Currently, is president of Wynn National, but you also are a partner at Jackson Kelly PLLC. Tell me a little bit about uh, your role there and what do you do for Jackson Kelly?
3: Well, it's a law firm based in Charleston, West Virginia, but we have offices out here in Denver and all around Appalachia and the Illinois Basin. And Jackson Kelly has really grown around the energy industry, but specifically for me, I'm an employment lawyer and a litigator by trade and most of what I do right now is consult with employers about how to solve issues that come up in their workplace and I do a little training and um, investigations of workplace issues when they come up. So that's kind of my role.
1: I think that's probably really super important right now because there is so much that an employer has to be careful with when we talk about employment laws um, and the oil industry is, is, is a huge industry with a lot of employees. So, making sure that they are um, following all the rules has got to be important. So, you probably have a lot of work.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I, I do. Um, I guess I'm lucky in, in a bad, luck, bad for employers, but sometimes good for lawyers, unfortunately. Um, yeah, you know, Me Too has really brought a whole new perspective to a lot of all employers across the United States and in the energy industry in particular because women are still kind of the minority, especially out in the field when you're talking about the the workforce out there on the jobs and um, on the rigs, in the mines, in whatever aspect of the energy industry you're looking for. Um, And, you know, employment laws and labor laws are just incredibly complicated. And I do wonder, I work with so many HR people in our region, how a layperson navigates that sometimes. So what I really enjoy about my job is that I can help employers on the front end resolve the issue rather than them making a mistake or a misstep and having to litigate it on the back end. Because it's much more expensive on the back end litigating than it is on the front end. Exactly.
1: Well, let's switch gears just a little bit and talk about, we're here at the 2019 Win National Conference. Um, you have breakout sessions. We have networking opportunities. Um, there have been keynote speakers. Um, so before uh, we get started with getting into really the nuts and bolts about what's going on, as you're aware of, I sit on the board of South Texas and you're the president of, of course, the National Board. Um, let's talk a little bit about what WIN's focus is. Um, I know the mission is fostering the professional growth and development of women in the energy industry. Tell me a little bit about how does Wynn, uh support uh,
3: this mission? Well, one of my board members uh, describes it succinctly. She says it's all about knowledge and networking. And so what we try to do at the chapter level is have not only networking opportunities where women can meet other professionals in the industry and and build a support group and relationships, but also give them the knowledge that helps them grow their careers as well.
1: You know, um, I've been a part of Wynn for about six years. I've seen it grow in those six years from maybe 10 chapters to now 21 chapters, and they're popping up. Everywhere And WEND is such a great organization because it truly uh, is a, a, a not-for-profit or non-profit. All the money raised goes back out into really helping promote the professional woman that is working in a male-dominant uh, industry and trying to provide mentoring and uh, networking and just kind of trying to uh, grow together, if you will. And there's a lot of information that a lot of the women who have been there, done that, want to give back to the younger ladies that are coming up through the ranks. So it's a really great organization. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, the organization. It's it, it's not just a female uh, member organization, even though the, the, the name is you know Women's Energy Network. Tell me about the diversity within the organization of WEN.
3: Well, men are members of, of WEN, and we think that they have to be part of the conversation. Men have to be part of the conversation in supporting women in the workplace, promoting women in the workplace, and making sure that um, they have a diverse company. And one of our speakers earlier yesterday had a video from S&P Global that showed the statistics about how much better a company operates when it's diverse. I thought that was really remarkable.
1: It it really is. So along with um, having different keynote speakers, what would you say? So we're here at, in Denver, right, uh, 2019, our conference is here in Denver. What would you say is, um been some of the more key highlight besides what you just mentioned, uh, anything that's standing out in your mind of, of a really great presenter or something that we covered that was absolutely necessary via the attendees really enjoyed it, got a lot out of it. Anything sticking out in your mind?
3: Well, the keynotes are what i'm what I've taken away from this. Um, it was fascinating to listen to Dr. Darden, the NASA.
1: Oh, she was amazing.
3: <laughs> she was amazing, and to hear her experiences and how she made sure that she was on the right career path, her whole career, and the advice that she gave all of the younger women in the audience about how she got where she was and um how she accomplished so much
1: you know i got to catch up with her after her presentation and the thing that stuck out to me with her presentation was thinking about what it must have been like to be first of all a woman an african a double minority african american woman and hitting these uh going to it was a segregated school she went to but still uh, first of all uh excelling in in math and making sure that she thought about where she needed to go and where she wanted to go in her career when it wasn't even around at that time. I mean, she was really um, thinking but also dreaming of where she wanted to go as a mathematician in a time when women really in the 50s were not um, working for NASA or uh, were not attending uh, college as a, uh, an African American, so she, so just to listen to her story and see how she fought um, as a double minority woman uh, to get where she wanted to go, and as she was inspiring uh, as far as retiring from NASA, an amazing uh, woman, Dr. Darden, and so I commend you for having a great speaker. She was very inspiring.
3: She was, and I thought one of the remarkable things about her speech is. She asked her supervisor at one point for promotion and got a no. And she sat on it for, she said a day or two and decided that wasn't good enough and went to the head of NASA and said, why can't I be in this position that all men hold because I have exactly the same credentials? And a couple weeks later, somebody listened and promoted her into that position. And that is something that women aren't necessarily good at. Right. is is making sure that we speak out for ourselves and sometimes we have to be our best advocate.
1: And with that, we do have to take a quick break. But when we return, we'll be wrapping up our interview with Aaron McGee, president of Wynn National. You are listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show and we'll be right back.
0: and Austin, the Texas Alliance is focused on a better business climate for you. The Texas Alliance has a staff consisting of highly experienced senior staff and supporting consultants serving our membership. Offices are located in Austin and Wichita Falls. Become a member today by visiting texasalliance.org or email us texasalliance at texasalliance.org.
1: Welcome back to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. We are at the Wynn National Conference in Colorado, and I want to rejoin our interview with Erin McGee, the president of Wynn National. Well, now, one of the things that Wynn does really well is we also want to try to push the needle in the area of energy companies with more diversity and inclusions for women. Um, Is there any areas that you think that... uh, when we'll focus on of of really trying to uh, excel in that area of of creating more diversity. I I see a lot since the five years I've been here. We have, when I started, we didn't have one, I believe, executive um, CEO and now we have a couple in this industry. Um, Where do you think uh, as an employment lawyer as well, where do you think they can really strengthen up um, and try to include this? Should they be investing in actual programs that help uh, develop these uh, give us some advice of what employers can do. What employers
3: can do well I think that first of all thanks to all the employers that allowed their women to take a couple days off to be here in Denver to hear not only hard topics about their industry but um, leadership leadership issues that have been shared here because a lot of the keynotes have talked about Um, the leadership component of their careers and how to get from A to B. So I think that's something important that employers can do. You know, and I think about Alice Jackson from Excel who just finished speaking, and I think that, and Barbara Humpton, they both gave us, from Siemens, gave us so much to think about not only where the energy industry is right now, but where we're gonna be in 15 and 25 years. And the more women that employers include in that discussion, the better. Because I think what we see here today is that women are really collaborative and we're really supportive. And you you have some competing factions in here with the different areas of the energy industry, with coal and oil and gas and renewables that every woman can sit here and have responsible, reasonable conversations about the different areas that, uh, of the energy industry that touch their lives, that they work in, and, and not butt heads. And I think when you have that collaboration, and again, women bringing that um, skill to the table, it just makes the energy industry or any company so
4: much better.
1: Well, as a personal opinion, this is my opinion. I do believe that women typically work really hard, um, sometimes even compared to the male part because when we finish our full-time day job, then we go on to our night job, which is the children and the household, and so we're continuously working for 24 hours a day. As we wind down the 2019 WIND conference here in Denver, Tell, uh, tell our listeners where um, they can uh, learn more about Wynn's mission, where can they go to possibly join. Um, and we definitely want more chapters in areas that we don't have them in. So uh, where can a listener go and get more information on Wynn?
3: Well, the best resource is our website, which is womensenergynetwork.org. It can take you to the local chapters that exist. If you don't have a chapter, we still have a national membership. Level that we're working on promoting um, and providing programming at that level as well, not just the conference, but more so, more in the future um, on that national program and mentoring. To be, to be determined. Um, but the website is the best place. Uh, my, my cell phone and my email are all public, so you're welcome to talk to me or Executive Director Duane Bender. We are welcoming new chapters. You mentioned in the past few years, we've grown from 10 to 20 in a very short period of time. So we're also trying to be strategic, but I'll tell you specific areas where we're looking at right now are Canada, uh, the Calgary Edmonton area, um, hopefully San Francisco and the Bay Area and um, <laughs> Southeast Asia. Because um, I had one of our national members talk about the women who want to be involved in WEN but aren't in places that WEN's chapter supports. And so um, that's our hope that not only can we have more new chapters in the right places where there aren't women's groups to support the women there. I mean, I'm from West Virginia, and it was a, it's a perfect place for um, a women's group because we are still way, way the minority in the energy industry there. But um, growing strategically is, is an important part of what we're going to try to do. And if you have any ideas about where you'd like to start a chapter, again, let us know.
1: Well, and I think the thing that you are, <laughs> I think the thing that you're mentioning is important. That Win is not just here in, in North America. Uh, we have a chapter in Mexico, and we are looking to grow internationally as well. Um, and you don't need a whole lot of people coming together. As, as you mentioned earlier, we the Win uh, mem- mission accepts men as well, so it can really be started by men and women in their area. Um, and I think the most important thing that I get out of Win throughout the year is all the amazing. Mixers and networking, breakfast, lunch, and mentoring circles that they hold. And every chapter is so different and unique, and they, they cater to what they need in their area. Great organization, amazing uh, uh, not-for-profit organization that all of the resources go back to helping uh, our membership. So I encourage our listeners to go to WIN, org and learn more and be a member and join us. Erin, thank you so much for stopping by and letting us interview you. And uh, we look forward to catching up with you, hopefully, here in the near future.
3: Well, thank you for your service to your chapter. And thanks to you all for being a great partner to Win over the years.
1: I'd like to take a quick moment to thank Dr. Darden, Aaron McGee, and David Blackman for joining us today on this week's In the Oil Patch radio show. And that is all the time we have for this show. But please be sure to like us on Facebook. That's Facebook.com slash In the Oil Patch. Or follow us on Twitter at ShellMag. That's S H A L E. M-A-G. And if you have any questions for me, or if you have questions on oil and gas, I encourage you to email me at radio at shellmag.com. That's going to wrap up another great show. See you next week with more exciting news and insightful interviews. Until then, adios.
0: You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch.